Hey, it's Lucy Kang here. Thanks so much for listening to Making Contact. If you want to support our work all year long, please consider signing up to make a monthly donation. Just $5 a month will help fund our social justice reporting all year long. Now, here's the show. Our system is, in too many ways, broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. On today's Making Contact, we're talking about Black history in Oklahoma. Someone asked, like, what would you want to get people to get from the series? And I think one of my, my number one response was healing. Kalalia made the critically acclaimed podcast series Blind Spot, Tulsa Burning. It covers the rise of Greenwood, a prosperous Black neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it also tells the story of a terrible massacre there in 1921. Greenwood has been portrayed in all these shows and documentaries. And and we kind of think, like, we know everything there is to know about Greenwood. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Stay with us. Before we start, I want to let you know that in today's episode, we're going to talk about a 1921 attack on a Black neighborhood, Greenwood, Oklahoma. The focus of this interview will not be the specific terrors of the event, but we wanted to make you aware that this episode includes discussion of racialized violence and hatred. The first thing to know about Greenwood is that there's a lot we don't know about Greenwood. Did I show you that map? No, I don't think so. That's Carlos Moreno and Bracken Clark of Tulsa's Tri-City Collective. Bracken is executive producer of the radio show Focus Black Oklahoma. Carlos is a journalist who contributes to the show and also wrote a nonfiction book called The Victory of Greenwood. During our interview, Carlos told Bracken that he's been working with academics and community scholars to piece together Greenwood's historic boundaries. Recently, they made some pretty big discoveries. Greenwood was like five times bigger than anyone has ever imagined. (laughs) It It was, insert expletive here, enormous. Okay. Greenwood was a community built by and for Black and Indigenous people in the early 1900s, and it was leveled in a violent attack in 1921. The white people who perpetrated the attack didn't talk about it, and out of survival, neither did the residents. A century of silence means a lot of information has been lost. But the centennial anniversary of the attack brought journalists and filmmakers, and even President Biden, to Tulsa. Much has been dredged up. Two years later, the outsiders are gone, but local activists, including Carlos, are using newly discovered historic documents to piece together not just the tragedy of the massacre, but the success of the neighborhood before and after the attack. Wow. So, like, that entire North Tulsa area was all one contiguous, like, Black community. It's, when you see it, I will show you this map one day. When you see it, it will, it will 
yeah, it will blow your mind. Everyone I've shown this to is like, this changes everything we know about Greenwood. Right. And um, Mimi at the School of Law is like, where did you get this? I'm like, we built it. (laughs) We, We painstakingly built it by hand in no small part to Jessica Shelton's work over the last four years, just spending evenings and weekends adding to a map, using census records, combining those with county land records. It's astonishing. That's super cool. And like, nobody even knows this. When we like unveil this map to like the world, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like, it will. It, it it rewrites everything that we even know about Greenwood. Yeah. While you're listening to this show, people like Carlos and Bracken and Tulsa's Tri-City Collective are actively talking about the truth of Greenwood. Like Carlos said, some of these truths change everything we thought we knew about Greenwood, like its original size. They even nailed down who exactly founded the neighborhood. It starts with a black couple named Ottawa and Emma Gurley. They had staked a claim of land in what is now Perry, Oklahoma, and did pretty well there. Then oil was discovered in the Glen Pool near Tulsa. And so they bought a little bit plot of land. And what's interesting is that the, the land deed of sale doesn't have Ottawa Gurley's name on it. It says Emma Gurley. So the founder of Greenwood is a black woman. Emma and Ottawa Gurley grew their wealth, and they weren't the only ones. Carlos said there were several black women entrepreneurs who did very well for themselves in Greenwood. To hear more about discoveries happening now in Greenwood, go to our website, radioproject.org. There, we have links to Focus Black Oklahoma, the Tri-City Collective, and the incredible Mapping Greenwood Project. Now we're going to shift to a conversation with host and lead producer of the Tulsa Burning podcast series, Kalalia. Um, well, how are you? I am okay. I have a lot going on right now. A lot of life stuff going on, but I, um, I have a lot to be grateful for, for sure. Well, it's good to hear your voice. I'm glad you're generally okay, busy, but like hanging in. Yes, I am. Thank you for asking. Yeah. And thank you so much for just making time for this and revisiting this project. And I just want to give it its proper celebration, which is, you know, that in 2022, you were awarded, you and the team were awarded a DuPont Columbia Journalism Award two Webbies for Best Series and Best Writing, and an NAACP Image Award. You were also nominated for a Peabody Award for this project. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot yeah. for one project, for sure. And I want to I play a little clip that is kind of an example of the creativity with which you used these kind of archival ads that were in the newspaper during that time and had some actors read them. So I want to play this just a little clip so that our listeners can get an, a sense of Greenwood. Ladies and gents, come on. 
going down to Williams Furniture Store. Even when you want furniture bad, you want it good. And if you're hungry, North Greenwood Grocery Store has fine staple groceries of all kinds. Or try Ragland and Ellis for waffles and plenty of other good things to suit the most fastidious. In town for a visit, stay at the Stratford, the leading colored hotel of the Southwest. Yeah, that is something that I believe I found in the Tulsa Star. Um, there was a, a business section. And in the end, Greenwood had a library, their own school, uh, two movie theaters, I believe, hundreds of businesses from furriers to, you know, cafes, restaurants, um, establishments where there was live music, butchers, just everything, candy shops. It was just like a, you know, a thriving community and neighborhood. And Greenwood, I want to mention, was not alone in this. I mean, there were hundreds of others in doing research. We had come across hundreds of other fully or predominantly Black-owned, Black-Indigenous oh, cool. towns or communities or counties um, like this throughout Oklahoma and mm. throughout the entire country, actually. And Oklahoma still has a few of those wow. communities that are Black-owned that were founded back in the early 20th century. So it, this was not really an anomaly. Mm -hmm. I think it, a lot of people think that, like, oh, there's just one magical place where Black people were able to thrive. But actually, that was happening all over the country, all over the world. Um, and... Greenwood, I think, obviously, because of the tragic mm -hmm. events and its mm -hmm. destruction um, in 1921, I think, obviously stands out. But that, again, is not um, it was not exceptional in any way. Um, there were a number of communities that were um, also destroyed and terrorized at the same time, Black communities. And we review that very quickly and like what I called a timeline montage in episode three. I want to jump in here to give a little more context. The Greenwood Massacre happened only two years after the Red Summer of 1919, a time when Black communities all over the nation were terrorized by white people. And like always, Black communities resisted. In Tulsa, one resistance group was called the African Blood Brotherhood. African Blood Brotherhood was an organization that, you know, was about self-sustainability. Yeah. They stood for Black um, liberation, you know. And, mm -hmm. you know, they had been, you know, um, veterans, right. World War One. So they were very knowledgeable and trained about fighting and... They knew how to fight. And warfare yeah. and, and such like that, you know. And some people define them as militant. I would just say that they were about empower, empowerment mm -hmm. overall, and that's not really right. militant. And self-sustainability, which to me is not militant at all, um, but they were also um, about self-defense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you never, yeah, you never really say the word scapegoat in the series, I don't think. No. But I definitely think of the African Blood Brotherhood as one of the scapegoats for the attack. Yeah. 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 So we have, so Greenwood is prospering and black and then they're armed and prepared to defend it. And suddenly there is an incident. Can you talk about Dick Rowland and the alleged elevator incident? It happened to be a holiday. It was Memorial Day. 
uh, he happened to go up to use the restroom, apparently allegedly tripped in the elevator, grabbed the white woman's hand. Uh, she yelled, this is all hearsay or allegedly uh, police or law enforcement sought him out and arrested him and took him to the local jail. Mm-hmm. And at the local jail, as things happened, especially during that time, a group of white people were outside trying to get into the jail because they wanted Dick Rollins so that they could lynch him. And some reason, I mean, this is the thing, like, I, I believe that somebody in Tulsa is working on this now, this story. Dick Rollins disappears. Mm. This, this woman that he touched also disappears. Uh, later, we've kind of learned, which is not in the series. Again, we really had to stay focused and it was tough to find this information out. But we later learned that they might have ended up in the exact same city, mm. the two, and that they might have actually been lovers. Wow. Consensual lovers. And that that was discovered. Yeah. And this whole thing happened. And Dick Rollins in that event in the elevator was the scapegoat, right. bringing it back to something you brought up. Yeah. And it was just an excuse to erupt and for the white people to kind of go in and destroy Greenwood. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Making Contact and an interview with Kalalia, producer and host of the podcast series Blind Spot Tulsa Burning. If you want to learn more about the series or Kalalia, you can visit our website at radioproject.org. Now, back to the show. I wanted to share this clip of an actor reading an account from a man who witnessed and survived the attack that day, and that's B.C. Franklin. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about B.C. Franklin, who he was and why he was there that day? So, yeah, B.C. Franklin is of indigenous and African descent. He was practicing law in Ardmore in a town called Rentiesville before moving to Tulsa early in 1921. Mm. He was there on his own looking for a place for them to live, for his son and his wife to live. And basically, he just happened to be there at the wrong time. He was in his hotel. Mm -hmm. He has a journal that our producer, um, Alana Casanova Burgess, had found that this is a firsthand account Mm -hmm. of what was happening on the day or, you know, the day of. It it actually went across two days. Mm -hmm. I believe he said one day earlier, but this actually went into two days. It it was about a 36-hour tragic event. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just for our listeners, I mean, I want to say that this clip does not actually include any violence from that day. The clip is only Franklin's account of of the calm with which the day began so that you can get a sense of this footage. It is May 31st, 1921. The day is just beginning. An unbroken stream of pedestrians, male and female, passes down Greenwood Avenue. It is made up of laborers, some empty-handed and others with dinner pails, on their way to work. And luckily, like I said, he was there without his his family so that he can secure housing. Yeah. And in the process of doing that, 
the massacre happened. And, and then we were able to interview his grandson, John W. Franklin. Yes. And wow, what a wonderful way to connect B.C. Franklin to his grandson in one episode and kind of you hear B.C. Franklin's writing an account of it yeah. and then you get to hear, you know, across generations the impact that that had on the Franklin mm-hmm. family, right, through through his grandson. And I thought that was really special. Yeah. Yeah. And it provides like this really intimate way of telling this story. And I just want to say regarding the intimacy that I really appreciated your use of self Mm -hmm. in the series and the way that you express empathy and like deep curiosity with the people that you're interviewing. Um, It really deepened the experience for me. And I do have a clip here of an interaction between you and J.W. Franklin, who's B.C. Franklin's grandson. So I wanted to play that. Can we talk about your grandfather's experience during the massacre? What did you know about that? Did he ever talk about it and its effect on him? He didn't discuss it with me. I grew up knowing about the massacre from my father. My father, he was six years old. And from the age of six to 10, they are a separated family. And they're not able to live together as a family until 1924. That's because your grandfather was helping a lot of the survivors and the victims of the massacre? Yes. Immediately following the massacre with his law partner and their temporary secretary, they're processing insurance claims from homeowners and uh, businesses that were destroyed in the massacre. There's a photograph of your grandfather that I really love. Um, It's of him sitting in a tent. Yes. And he's working and there's a typist or a stenographer or something like that. So it's a it's a sepia colored photograph of a Red Cross cloth tent. Um, there's a brick floor. There's a desk, which Miss Thompson is sitting at with a typewriter. And between the typewriter and I.H. Spears is a telephone. Mm. Telephone is in two parts. There's a part that you put on the table and there's a part that you take and listen to in your ear. Mm-hmm. Very different from the phones we have now. Yes. But I think it's remarkable that in a Red Cross tent, following a catastrophe, six days later, they have a phone in their tent. Right. How did that happen? Remarkable. I don't know. But I also appreciated the way that the production of the show is really um respectful of the trauma that is brought up when we tell traumatic stories. You do take care to provide like content warnings in the series, but you also dedicate an entire episode to talking about not just the trauma, but healing Mm -hmm. too. And I thought it was unusual. Yeah, that's very important. I think somebody asked before we even started, you know, the interviews or producing, I feel like I had like some type of interview to launch the episode and someone asked like, what would you like people to take away or what would you want to get people to get from the series? And I think one of my, my number one response was healing. Mm. I want to play a clip of you and Resma Minikim, who's a psychotherapist and trauma specialist that, you know, basically takes up the bulk of episode five. Think about this. 
it is relatively new that me and you can be talking the way that we're talking on on this thing mm-hmm. and be somewhat sure that there's probably not a lynch party out here waiting for us, mm-hmm. right? That's new, sis. That's, I mean, that's really new that we can no, be doing true. this, right? Mm-hmm. For most of our lives, the white body has had full and unfettered access to every part of our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a problem for them because when they don't get that deference, something happens to them and they have not examined that as a collective when black people have their own agency, when black people have their own sense of being. And so for me, it really is about, as black people, how do we begin to turn towards each other more, reclaim those pieces and metabolize that energy for our freedom as opposed to using that same energy to burn each other up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're saying it is possible to heal ourselves? It is possible. Not only is it possible, it's being done. (laughs) If it wasn't being done, there would be no reason why you would reach out to me and want to talk to me. Healing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. in particular is obsessed with trauma, stories around oppression, um, especially of marginalized communities, black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's an obsession with it. There is also a, a huge amount of consumption of it. It's being sold um, in the journalism world, yeah. in mm-hmm. the in the world of television and film, right? It's a commodity. Uh, we just, yeah, yeah, it's a commodity. And so, what I would like for us to focus on is more healing and service. Mm. And I, I feel like we need to spend more time and energy is interrogating, investigating the people who are nameless, you know, not so much focusing on only the trauma and only the pain and the suffering, but also who's accountable. Where do they come from, right? Mm. You used the word white mob earlier. That's another way of absconding or of evading the individuals. Right that were responsible of shielding them. If you just say white mob, you don't have to look for the people. You don't have to know what their family names are. You don't have to know their connection or relation to Tulsa. And a lot of those families are still there, right? Right. But if you use white Mm -hmm. mob, then it's done. That's why throughout the whole series, you hear me use white people. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of my story editors saying like, oh my God, we have to say, white so many times. And and I'm like, this is how it feels to be black. Mm. I don't want to be a black journalist. I'm a black, I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, there were, there were certain moments where even for myself, I thought people should know, like people should know this Mm. story, how vicious you know, yeah. these neighbors, these people were the people that mm-hmm. you might call your neighbors. Right. Right. And that is the thing that um, and it, it needs to be addressed. If I ever yeah. could do another series, I think I would totally investigate the white side of town and try to talk to mm. as many people as possible. It sounds like a confronting a denial system. Yeah. 
So the final episode, it kind of talks about what's going on in Tulsa right now, Mm -hmm. including efforts by legislators to stop fact-based lessons, which are being referred to as critical race theory. You know, it's not very surprising. Erasure um, is part of of U.S. history since the 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 beginning. <laughs> it's it's always been a thing. There were Native people here, but let's the, act like they weren't here. You know, right? Oh, you don't think that the Tulsa race massacre should be taught in schools in Oklahoma? Because it might make a white student feel bad. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's hard to understand why we would you we would live on a planet with millions and millions or billions of various life forms and species, all types of colors and sizes and shapes and abilities and 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 uh, that are part of a larger ecosystem and that you can understand that why we have various trees and birds and animals, but you can't appreciate that when it comes to the human race, you know, the Mm -hmm. differences and the differences in diversity and how that contributes to our world and our larger Mm -hmm. and smaller communities. Uh, I don't want to live in a world Mm -hmm. where there's only black people like me, you know, that's not interesting Mm -hmm. to me. And so I don't really understand sometimes it it would appear that people like uh, in Congress in particular have this desire (laughs) to only be around people that agree with them, that look like them, Mm. that think like them. I am so grateful that I am not one of those people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Talk about psychology. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It occurs to me you are a person, a Kalia, who's walking around this earth with like eyes wide open and just refusing to be buffered. And how important and impactful that approach to life in the world is. I And I really appreciate that about you. And I, I just appreciate all the work that you're putting out and the energy that you're putting into it for all of us to be able to participate in it and be changed by it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for saying that, Amy. And I'll just say that I have my family. I have my ancestors to thank for that, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I, um, yeah, I am not alone in this world and that, um, there are a lot of people out here that are doing the work and in small and big ways. And so I just aspire in my life to be, you know, a better human being. And, and I, and I sometimes fail at that, but if given the opportunity of given another day, when given another breath, it's just like, yeah, it's better than just sinking <laughs> and mm. fall, you know, and, mm-hmm. and and some days I don't have the energy, you yeah. know, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I, I, too, am exhausted a lot of times for this mm-hmm. reason. But I also am very energized by it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure. I have a lot of respect for the work that Making Contact has done over the years. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah. Great. So thanks a lot. Well, you have a wonderful Hope day. Hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll stay you in touch. Too, a... Let's stay in touch. Yes. I'd love to catch yes, up. Yes. Yeah. I'll reach out anytime. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh. All right. You All right. Care. Thanks, Amy. You too. I just, just hang up this. Um. Hold on. Let me go look at it. Yep. You can just click leave session. Oh, yep. Bye bye. I'm Amy Gastelum. You're listening to Making Contact and an interview with Kalalia about the award-winning podcast series Tulsa Burning. In observation of Black History Month, we're running a three-part series that digs a bit deeper into Greenwood. Next week, we're going to hear more from the fellows you heard at the top of today's episode, Carlos Moreno and Bracken Clark of Tulsa's Tri-City Collective and KOSU's Focus, Black Oklahoma. They're going to talk about what happened after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre and what's happening now. To listen to all the episodes in this special series, you can find us on all the podcast platforms or our website, radioproject.org. Take care.